One day in one of my black history classes, I was playing either this album by Malcolm X or The Ballad of the Bullets. And 1964 looks like it might be the year of The Ballad or the Bullets. I was playing it in class and Paul Stevens, who was the principal, he was just going through the building one day and he walked into my classroom, my black studies class. And at the very time he walked in, Malcolm X was berating white folks. When white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. Blonde hair, blue eyes. And uh, Paul Stephen looked at me and looked at the class. He said, well, I guess I don't belong in here. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. James Wright started teaching in Columbia, South Carolina in the 1970s. You just heard about a memorable day in his classroom at Eau Claire High School. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Derek Alridge, and I'm a professor in the UVA School of Education and Human Development, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement Project. And I'm Dr. Danielle Wingfield-Smith, and I'm an associate director of the Teachers in the Movement Project. I'd also like to introduce you to Kristen McCullum and Hunter Hope. They're both doctoral students here in the UVA School of Education and Human Development. You taught history and social studies. I taught at Eau Claire High School. My first course was world history. That was the first year of teaching. My second year of teaching, I believe I had civics and U.S. history. And then the third year thereafter, I developed the what we then called minorities in American history. Minorities one, which was the black experience, and mm. minorities two, we dealt with uh, American Indians and other minorities. So, the students have a choice to take U.S. history or minority American history, or oh, minorities in American. That was totally elective. Oh, that was. But it was one of the more popular classes we had at Eau Claire High School. Mm -hmm. You see, that was the era, and you know, in the seventies, just after the big civil rights movement and 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 the push and the emphasis mm -hmm. on blackness and the black experience and African-American studies and black studies mm -hmm. in colleges and universities, as well as in uh, public schools. What was the racial makeup of your classes at Eau Claire? Initially, when I started, it was about 50-50, 50% white and 50% black. Now, of course, the black population increased at Eau Claire and the white population declined. Mm. And by the time I left, Eau Claire, or stopped teaching in uh, 78, 79, there were very few white kids left at Eau Claire High School. Mm -hmm. uh, because, as you well know, during the heyday of integration, many of the schools were pretty well balanced. And then, of course, you had white flight with people moving out. This is Hunter. Can you give us a little context on what white flight was like in Columbia, South Carolina? it was like it was in many other places. Across the southern states, white parents 
move to different locations to avoid having their kids go to school with black kids. We see this in incredible numbers throughout states like Virginia, South Carolina, and North Carolina and parts of the Deep South. In some instances, these uh, students actually went to what was later called segregation academies. And these were private institutions that sometimes receive public funding to carry on a system of Jim Crow education. And so in several of our interviews, teachers talked about how um, in many instances, we see schools that were meant to be desegregated uh, remain segregated as a result of white flight. What kind of teaching style did you have? Did you lecture or did you do uh, kind of hands-on um, group activity work? All of the above, right. yeah. Yeah, kids did research. There were times we had lectures. Yeah. At the time we had uh, video presentation. Right. Uh, the kids did debates. I think we were engaged in a debate or a dialogue about Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois in terms of their views. Mm-hmm. And uh, each time I think about one of the things that come to mind is Dudley Randall's poem, Booker T. and W.B., yes. they yes. both belong to me, yes. et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me, said Booker T., it shows a mighty lot of cheek to study chemistry and Greek. When Mr. Charlie needs a hand to hold the cotton on his land. Several of our teachers have talked to me about uh, how they taught uh, Du Bois and Washington. And they often talk about Du Bois being a supporter and advocate of classical education. If I should have the drive to seek knowledge of chemistry or Greek, I'll do it. Charles and Miss just gonna have to look another place for hand or cook. Whereas Booker T. Washington was a supporter and advocate of vocational industrial education. The debate between these two men occurred between 1895 up until around 1907. Uh, Booker T. Washington would die in 1915. But unfortunately, these two men have been presented in many of our textbooks as being ideological opposites, when in fact, they had the same goal and objective of providing education for African-Americans to advance the race. Some men rejoice in skill of hand and some in cultivating land, but there are others who I maintain deserve the right to cultivate their brains. Did you all, did you use that in your class? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you teach about Du Bois in Washington? How, how did you approach that topic? Well, I'll share up front sure. my bias okay. uh, uh, that I would overemphasize the fact that I agree with Du Bois. Okay. For what can property avail if dignity and justice fail? Uh, but, I, but one Unless of the major tools was using, uh, and it may not have been fair to Booker T., but that 1895, 1896 speech. Yes. Uh, in let, let down your bucket. The Atlanta Compromise yes. speech. Let down your bucket. Where you are, yeah. whatever. Those of my race who underestimate the importance of cultivating friend relations with the southern white man who is their next door neighbor, 
I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down making friends in every manly way of the people of all races by whom you are surrounded. But uh, the objective was to get the kids to understand that in terms of African-Americans navigating this hell of a journey from slavery, uh, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, segregation, lynching, and all that has happened to us, that there were different points of view, and but that the goal was progress. A strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. He keeps us divided in order to conquer us. He tells you I'm for separation and you for integration and keep us fighting with each other. No, I'm not for separation and you're not for integration. What you and I are for is freedom. It sounds like um, you had great latitude um, in the classroom in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, uh, whether I had it or not, I took it. <laughs> Teachers during the early 1970s, often, they had great autonomy in the classroom to bring in speakers, to bring in outside resources and sources to use in their pedagogy. Mr. Wright, being a bibliophile, often talked about bringing in books on African-American history and sharing them with the students. Teachers have lost a lot of that autonomy today in the classroom because they're often encouraged or forced to teach to test. And of course, he talks about the famous uh, speech by Malcolm X, ballot or the bullet, the ballot or the bullet. And I find that outstanding that a teacher teaching at a public school that was desegregated in the 1970s could actually bring Malcolm X into the classroom. It'll be liberty or it'll be death. And if you're not ready to pay that price, don't use the word freedom in your vocabulary. Was that, was that a major phenomenon? Black history and minority history uh, at high schools after the civil rights movement in 1970s. Do you remember any of your colleagues at other schools teaching the courses that you taught? Eau Claire was in the forefront. And now whether we were the only high school, I can't say. I remember being shocked when I got to Keenan High School, the lack of emphasis on African-American studies. Keenan at that time had a reputation for being the black middle class high school. Sort of a successor, many people wanted to think, to Booker T. Washington. Just work and save and buy a house. <laughs> That's pretty much the mindset. Uh, and it was viewed as a step above the other black, uh, other high schools. And I remember uh, one of the teachers, she was a major teacher at, uh, at Keenan, uh, Mrs. Duvall. I taught her son at Eau Claire, and she was visiting Eau Claire as a parent once, and I was singing the praises of black studies and uh, how the kids were excited about the black studies classes and all the kinds of things we were doing in the classroom and outside and throughout the school and, and the focus on student council. And uh, Mrs. Duvall in her classic enunciation said, uh, we don't have black studies at Keenan High School. We have it in U.S. history where it belongs. Uh, I was taken aback by that. 
And uh, in fact, it's interesting because my first or second year at, at uh, Keenan, Ms. Duvall and I had a debate on the stage in front of the kids. Again, Booker T. Washington, WB. Well, what was your, your, your method, your teaching method? How, how did you teach? One of the things that I emphasized with kids, and it was from the pre-old school, is memorizing that we don't do very much of now. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in high school, one of my best teachers in high school, Mr. Robert Massey, we had to learn the American's Creed, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, and, and we had to learn uh, the New Colossus, the preamble to the Constitution, uh, mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things. And so in, in that process, you develop confidence in speaking before a group, being before the class, and also uh, uh, retaining information. And uh, things that I learned, then I can pretty much recite them now. And early on, that was the emphasis in the church. When we had our Easter speeches or our Children's Day speeches, uh, it was expected that you would not get up and read it. And uh, I get uh, chagrin uh, with my fellow parishioners at Greenview First Baptist when we choose to sing periodically, lift every voice and sing. Uh -huh. People are looking for a hymn book uh -huh. or to find it in or whatever. And uh, not even, you know, aware of, or even the author of it or the history of it to memorize it. Memorization was a common strategy used in black schools and in churches during the civil rights era. I can give an example of myself, for instance. Every Easter and every Christmas, uh, if you were in a black church and you were a child, you were required to uh, learn a poem or make some type of speech. And this was very, very important in the kind of socialization of black children uh, during that period. And learning these skills, the skill of memorization while in the black church was very, very helpful for kids who when they went to school. Mr. Wright and many of our teachers talk about this strategy of memorization in their pedagogy kind of falling out of vogue or not being as popular as it was at one time. And that, that's unfortunate. Even today, when I speak, in the back of my mind, I go back to that little country church in South Carolina, in which I looked out into the audience and I saw my parents, my aunties, and my uncles and telling me to keep eye contact and project your voice. And that's something that remains with me today when I teach my classes at the University of Virginia, but also when I give lectures around the country. Yeah, I echo that. Even my generation, I have the same story. And I grow up remembering having to recite Langston Hughes and my grandmother repeatedly telling me, make eye contact, speak up, project your voice, speak clearly. I also remember some of the teachers that we've interviewed mentioned that their students, black and brown children, had to be twice as good and work twice as hard. The type of educators that Mr. Wright was, they're worth emulating. Their strategies work. Their pedagogical tools are ones that are useful as we grapple with the ongoing struggle for civil rights and teaching now during the height of our current social movements. 
And so while you were teaching, I'm sure that you came across uh, many of the uh, individuals who are considered activists or civil rights activists in uh, South Carolina during that period. Do you have any relationship with any of those individuals or did you come across them? I remember uh, my first introduction to John Hope Franklin, I met him several times thereafter, mm-hmm. was in 1966. He was lecturing at USC. On John Hope Franklin, he's considered one of the most prominent historians of the African-American experience. And his most famous book is called From Slavery to Freedom, which was published in the 1940s. And believe it or not, is still being used today. Of course, it's been updated several times. It's in its umpteenth edition. I don't remember what edition it is, but it's still being published and being updated by other historians. Uh, My first introduction to John Hope Franklin was in 1966. And uh, Dr. Weston took a group of us up to USC to hear John Hope Franklin lecture. In fact, I think I have every edition of that classic of his, uh, Slavery to Freedom. Freedom. And didn't know much about USC and didn't know much about the head of the history department, but I learned later Dr. Rogers, who was a longtime head of the history department at USC, had a reputation for being a racist, uh, or he just told the line at that time. But I remember when he introduced John Hope Franklin uh, that night, that was the first time I heard the word Negro used repeatedly. He didn't say he had written the history of the Negro, but the history of the Negro, of the Negro. And that was his way of, you know, pronouncing that. Negro. It was signifying, in my opinion, of not giving black people the respect to call them Negro, but not going as far as to call them the N-word, right? So they would say Negro. Now, I don't have any uh, research to, to, to prove that that's what happened, but we all knew what was going on. In addition to his career teaching history, Mr. Wright had conducted extensive original historical research. He wasn't just teaching African-American history, he was doing and living black history in his community and in his family. I have a goal of at some point writing a historical account of the teachers and the schools in Chester County. Yes. And uh, also the churches, African-American churches. That's that's what I'd like to see uh, come to fruition before I expire. I want to see that. Here's a, uh, some of my research. I'd like to spend as much time as I can over at uh, South Carolina Department of Archives and History. Mm-hmm. My wife's great-great-grandfather, Wilson Wilson, testified in Charleston during the trials of the Klan. And I got a couple of publications back then. We have the testimony. My daughter's done extensive research with the Yorkville Inquirer. They published a lot of articles from Chester and all over. I thought of that when I mentioned the Klan activity mm-hmm. because the Yorkville Inquirer covered that extensively. 
and the trials. So these South Carolina Klan trials really represented what was the culmination of the federal government's effort during Reconstruction to prevent or end white violence and provide some type of personal security for black people at the time. Working with his daughter, Mr. Wright discovered that his wife's great-great-grandfather had testified against the Klan in those trials. And so these highly publicized trials resulted in the conviction of several Klansmen of what was originally 220 Klansmen who were indicted. What I thought's very interesting about these trials was that the jury was actually comprised of mostly former slaves. And the few whites on the jury for these trials were said to have been Republicans and presumed to be opposed to the Klan. So what might have been the consequences of Wilson Wilson testifying in these trials? As was common during the time, right, retaliation, threats of violence, or worse, right, death. It was a very serious thing uh, to uh, openly in court testify against the Klan. So where did you um, develop or where did you get your love for African-American history? Did that start as a child or when you got in junior high or high school? Derek, the best way to answer that, I don't remember when I didn't have it. I really don't as far back as I can remember in my conscious mind, I was sensitive to that. And it may be that uh, I was reared and influenced by older people and in the church. I had uh, teachers, particularly Mr. Massey at Finley High School who emphasized black studies and things we had to learn. And then, of course, my daughter and I, she's passionate also. We do a lot of family research. We have gone back to, I think as early as we have gotten back to the 1830s. And we had a family gathering on Christmas Day up in Chester at Brooklyn School, my elementary school. I have a picture of it here somewhere. And we, uh, and I charge all the family members, two names you want to remember, Samuel and Melinda Whitlock. And I'll show you a profile that we have of them out here from their first owners through the end of uh, slavery. And I've just always had a a sensitivity. I've just viewed ordinary people as being noble. I'm Derek Aldridge, and I'm joined today by Dr. Danielle Wingfield-Smith, Krista McCullum, and Hunter Hope. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the documentary and video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is part of the Virginia Audio Collective. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee. You heard the voices of a few other people today. Malcolm X's speech, The Ballot or the Bullet, was delivered in Detroit in 1964. The poem Booker T. and W.E.B. is by Dudley Randall and was read by Triple Black and recorded at Black Poets Speak Out Chicago. The recording of Booker T. Washington's Atlanta Compromise speech is hosted online by the Library of Congress. And our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.